You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I have a just, a, I'm thrilled to have as my guest today, Miss Jan Slimming. Uh, she wrote the book Code Breaker Girls, A Secret Life at Benchley Park. I want to read you the foreword by Sir Dermot Turing about this book. He wrote, this beautiful history book reads as smoothly as a novel, but it is true and often an unknown bit of history. I was hooked from page one. The writing is masterful, the story is powerful, and this bit of history is fascinating, and it certainly is. Jan, welcome to the show, young lady. Thank you for having me here. Well, you're most welcome. I, I think the uh, listeners will be aware very shortly that uh, you were pr- not born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, where you live now. <laughs> but uh, tell me a little bit about where you were born and uh, raised and a little bit about your childhood. Right, sure. Um, well, I was born in Surrey in England, actually, but more South London. And um, so I lived around South London and Central London for most of my life, actually, until um, I got married um, in uh, in 1990 and, um, and when I moved to Reading, Berkshire. But um, growing up in London was, was very... Um, convenient for me actually I worked in London I worked in a publishing company in London um, from a um, a young age and I stayed in that industry for um, nearly 20 years <coughs> excuse me and um, yeah it was it was it was really good and then um, in in 2000 I had um, three young children and we had the opportunity to move to, to America with a lollipop company of all things, and um, <laughs> and that was it was called Chopper Chops, which is um, for the Spanish yeah. verb suck, and uh, those yeah. round Kojak style lollipops. Anyway, they were quite big in England and and doing okay in America, and, and my husband came over to sort out the American side of things, and, and we came, and we were supposed to stay for three years, and twenty years later, we're still here. So it's been an amazing um, time living in Atlanta. We've always lived in Dunwoody, and um, yeah, we've we've we, we've had a very nice time. And my kids have all grown up here <clears throat> and went to college, and um, and we go back from time to time to see family and friends. And uh, not at the moment, though, of course. <laughs> that is a fascinating story. I have heard a lot of. Uh... Uh, people and the reasons they came to America, but I never heard anybody say we came because of a lollipop. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Okay. Uh, What made you write this book at this time in your life? You know, like why now? Yeah. um, That's quite interesting because um, my father, who was um, a prisoner of war in um, the Far East, he he had a recording and um, which he did for me in 1990, and I thought if I ever did a book, it would be that. Anyway, kind of time went on, you know, bringing the kids up and everything, and we never, I never really got to it, and just always kept thinking I must get back to transcribing that recording. And um, 
time went on and then one day um, when we were in Atlanta actually um, in 2012 I think it was um, I was listening to NPR in the morning um, and Steve Goss started saying what would it be like to keep a secret for 50 years never tell your parents your children or even your husband and I was kind of half awake thinking, oh, my gosh, a secret, you know. And, and I, I knew that my mother had been at Bletchley Park. I'd known for a very, very, very long time that that's where she worked during the war. But I never really knew what she did until um, <clears throat> the 70s when the news started to break about co-breaking and enemy messages and all of that at Bletchley Park. But still, she was never saying, and because of the Official Secrets Act, she never, ever just said, well, this is what I did. It was always snippets of information. So um, in 2012, my mother had already died in 2006. I still did not have her story. And then so I started listening to this interview um, with Steve Goss, and, and I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is my mother's story, except that lady, who was also called Janice, and my name is Janice, um, that lady had an American accent. <laughs> it's not my mother, obviously. <laughs> and um, I thought, I've got to track her down. So I, I did. And um, I went on to NPR on the website and found out what her name was because I hadn't heard her name properly. And then realized that she was um, Professor Emeritus at Georgia State University. You might oh. know her, GP. Um her name was Janice Martin Benario. Okay. And um, she um, she had she was born in Baltimore. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> she was born in Baltimore. Um, lived in. Um, she worked in Washington, um, but lived in Atlanta. And I thought, wow, I definitely need to track her down. So I, I managed to. Um, get a message to the administration department at Georgia State, who seemed extremely excited. And um, they said, obviously, we can't give you her phone number, but we'll pass on her message. Anyway, within about an hour, there was Janice Benario calling me on the phone, and we had a long conversation. And um, eventually, she sent me lots of information. And after about <clears throat> six months, we actually met. And um, I started <clears throat> to pull together all the research. And, and that's when I decided, because I had all the information, I really needed to write about it and to get all my thoughts in order. And eventually it became a book. And because I was in publishing before, I knew what the route was and knew what was required. I knew it wouldn't take, you know a year. I knew it would take a long time. I was in educational publishing, so we, we had to do things correctly. And um, and it was... How, it, and how long how did it take? Yeah, how long did it take? Eight, year, eight years. Oh, okay, very good. Yeah. All right. Well, why actually, did you write it... it yeah, Jan, why did you write it like a novel? Um, well, that was another interesting thing. So, um, even though I'd been in publishing for... Um, 20-odd years, I'd never actually ever written a book myself. And and through that process, you learn that 
um, okay, you can write letters and reports and all those sorts of things, and you, um, you know, and you're pretty good at it. But people used to say, well, writing writing a novel or writing a book is so much. You, you've really got to go and learn how to do it. And I would say, okay, all right. And um, so eventually, when I came to writing all these thoughts down and everything, I joined the Atlanta Writers Club. And through that, I joined a critique group. And all those people in my critique group were writing fiction. So all the critique I was getting was, you know, based on fiction, where they would say, oh, that's too much of a download. Don't do that. You've got to put some um, dialogue in. Anyway, I did did that. I tried to do that and tried to be, you know, a bit more in my mother's head about, you know, what was going on based on, you know, things she'd said to me in my, you know, growing up and everything. And I would say, yeah, she definitely would have said something like that. But in the end, it got to be too much dialogue. And I just thought, no, this is ridiculous because, you know, how would I know exactly what she would say when she was at Bletchley Park? And, and I just had to... I had to scale it back a bit. So I had the feel of it being a novel, um, but then I knew I had to put in a lot of the facts, which, to be honest, were, you know, the work that she was quite boring, really. And so, but I wanted to, I wanted it to flow more than anything. And I wanted to keep the reader um, attached to it. So, and I've, I've heard that people can get through it in three days. So, I suppose oh. that's not bad. Yeah, and so that, that was why, really. So there was a bit of a, a technical reason behind that. Otherwise, it would have just been a, you know, a, a straight report with right. citations which, which people would just dip into. Right. Which part of the service was your mother in? Well, that's an interesting question because um, she wasn't actually in the service as such, apart from the civil service, which was the um, the government. So she was um, employed, ultimately, by the Foreign Office. And so she was a, um, a, a government civilian um, employee. And, um, but she, when, during the Second World War, when um, everything, you know, was happening and uh, a lot of the women um, stayed behind to do all the men's jobs, and, and that's basically what she was doing. Until 1941, uh, the end of 1941, there was an act passed for all women to, all single women must sign up. Anyway, in, in that period, 1942, she actually was a firefighter. And huh. um, so she joined the WVS women's voluntary service as a firefighter and so she you know she would go to work and then she would do night duty or something like that and she'd just be on call just in case you know a bomb dropped nearby and there were several there, there was one there's a photograph that you might have seen of a, a bus down a hole in Balham High Street well that was three miles away from where my mother lived and um, must have happened at night I think and um and a, a mile away from where she worked. So um, the, the bombs were, were very close. And yeah. she, um, so she didn't sign up to, before some of her friends did actually, they, sometimes you would find 
that they would sign up for something for some serv- for one service like the Wrens, um, but then which is the equivalent of the Waves, the Navy, um, and but then they would be put in the Army, so ATS or something like that. So so she went along. You had to go along to the Labour Exchange to go and sign up, which she did. Right. Okay. And this is this is very interesting, Jan. We do have to go to our first break, but we'll be right back with uh, Jan Slimming and her mother's uh, work in Benchley Park was the intelligence apparatus for the British during World War II. We'll be right back, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. As we uh, brought out the information yesterday... America's Web Radio at 500 Sugar Mill in Sandy Springs is, uh, we're a collecting point for Shine His Light, which is run by Frankie Holbrook, and they're collecting the plastic bags that we get at the grocery stores, and what they do is Forsyth Central High School has a group of girls that weave these together into mats for the homeless. And uh, they protect them from wet as far as the concrete goes when it's raining and also uh, cold and hot. So if you've got uh, if you've got a bunch of uh, the plastic bags that you haven't figured out what to do with, well, we have a recycling program for you, and they help the homeless. So keep that in mind, and you're welcome to bring them by the radio station and uh, – Frankie will have some of her people come by and pick them up. They need 500 per quilt, so you can imagine how many are needed. With that being said, let's get back to Pete and his guest, Jan. And this is very fascinating, Jan. Um, Look forward to listening to some more. So back to you, Pete. Thank you, David. Uh, Jan, I want you to uh, go ahead and complete what you were talking about, but then after that, uh, tell me a little bit about where your mother lived and what she did before the war and before going to uh, Bletchley Park and explain to the folks exactly what Bletchley Park was. 
The floor is yours, young lady. Okay. Well, um, yeah, just to finish that last part where she um, went to the labor exchange, um, they um, found that she was, um, you know, the right kind of candidate, and I'll explain that a bit more in a minute when I go into more about her her life. Um, and that, and so she was she was diverted to another office, um, to the foreign office, <clears throat> instead of the services um, for this secret work at Bletchley Park. Anyway, but to go on to um, to the beginning, really. Um, so she, so my mother's name was Daisy Lawrence, and she was born in 1917 in Tooting, Southwest London. And she was the third child of four. They lived in a small apartment um, at the top of, um, it was like a, a house split in two by the railway tracks. And her father was, um, they, they were a poor family. Her mother was in service, a bit like, you know, the cook in Downton Abbey. And um, her father was... He worked on the railway sometimes. He laid tram lines. He sometimes was a signalman. He sometimes was a um, a painter and a decorator, you know, like a remodeler. I do know that he was lots of fun and had was always joking with people all the time. Um, and, and Daisy was born into this family. Um, they didn't have much money, but, but one of the things that her mother was really keen on was that her children would have an education and would not have to be in service like her like she was and the rest of her family before her and so um they all went to this little primary well i call it a primary school which would be like elementary school here and um she she stayed there for her, the whole of her school life. She went there when she was four or five and then um, left when she was 14. Now, her sister um, was 10 years older than her and she left when she was 13. And um, children in England in those days, they had to um, get their education and then go to work so that they could earn money for the family. So that's more what her sister did, but um, my mother was allowed to, to stay an extra year. Um, but even so, um, she still ended up being a shop girl, really, in the co-op, which I always compare to something like J.C. Penney. And um, so she was in haberdashery, measuring ribbons and trying on hats and giving people... <laughs> different hats to wear and things like that and but she only stayed there for about two weeks because they found out that she was really good at math so she was promoted to the um, accounts department and, and and that's where she stayed for quite a long time and um, and she met my father there as well um, he worked he worked at the co-op and not only that her older brother and sister all also worked there so it's a it was like a bit of a dynasty really that um that family had started in the co-op co-op at tooting it was actually tooting oh. Bay. so um so that was the main part of her early life and until um they actually <clears throat> until the war really in 
whenever, whenever that was starting to brew in 1939. And um, things all changed for them. And she was in her early 20s at that point. Okay. And uh, so you said that she worked for the fire department for a while, and then she was chosen to go to Bletchley Park. Uh, how did that come about? And explain to the listeners exactly what Bletchley Park was in England. Right. <clears throat> well, she um, she got this message um, from the people at Bletchley, um, from it's actually in London, in Piccadilly, Devonshire House. And um, she had this interview, and she obviously passed the interview, and um, she was given an instruction to to go to um, to go to Bletchley Park, and she was told to catch the the ten. How do I say it? To, to travel by ten ten forty a.m. train from Euston on the 29th of December 1942 for employment with the Foreign Office, Bletchley Bucks, and as as a clerk, and it gave her salary. It was 51 shillings, which is £2.50, which in dollars, I think, is not very much money. I'm just trying to think what it is, but it's um, <laughs> it's probably probably about £3 a week. So, okay. Three, sorry, $3 a week. Um <laughs> plus a bit of overtime. Um, so they didn't know where they were going. Nobody knew what Bletchley Park was. Uh, and when she got there, um, she was picked up by somebody at the station, a strange man at the station, taken in a car and driven the US very short to this mansion in the middle of the countryside. And um, in an office there, there was a commander who told her to sign the Official Secrets Act. Now, it was a form for the Official Secrets Act, obviously, because only the Queen can sign the Official Secrets Act. But, um, so, she... It was all secret. She was told she was never to talk about the work there. Um, She couldn't tell anyone, not her, you know, mother or father or her siblings or her fiancé, because she had a fiancé at that point. And um, she she went and had um, you know they 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 had they were billeted in different places and um, the next day she was put on some form of um, training course which was code breaking. Now Blasley Park had been put had been had moved to the countryside. Um, probably two or three years before um, Daisy actually got there. In fact, actually, it was leading up to the beginning of the war, so that would have been 1939. And um, she, uh, they had had everybody coming up from London that was part of this place called Room 40, which was the Naval Intelligence Department. And, And somewhere between the First World War and the Second World War, there had become an, an, an agreement between the army and the navy. Uh, not much on the air force at that point, um, because it was, it was still separate. Um, but they they came together as um, SIS, which was Signals Intelligence Service, 
And um, to, to disguise this, it was called the Government Code and Cipher School. And so it was GC and CS. And they, uh, people from London all came up very secretly, especially when the war started. There were lots of um, professors from Cambridge, people with really incredible mathematical minds that could break codes. And um, they were doing a lot of it manually. And you've heard of Alan Turing, I guess. Yes. And um, and he was also brought in. I think he was actually brought back from Princeton University in order to start his war work. Um, and he was one of the people that helped the um, build the bomb machines, which were the faster code-breaking machines, because... Um, by that time, in 1940, everybody knew that if, if people were using cipher machines to actually make codes, then um, they needed fast um, code-cracking machines. So then that's where Alan Turing came in. But mm. my mother was, ne- was not actually, um, although, although it was all there at Bletchley, she never actually saw a bomb machine because that was not her job, her job. Was something different. Uh, did she did she know anyone there when she got there? No, she didn't really know um, who was there. Um, most of the people <laughs> she did keep she did keep in touch with some people after the war, but um, uh, there was one person. It turned out that was there and. She found out a bit later that her, one of her best friends had gone there. So her best friend, um, who she worked with at the co-op, um, had also gone to Bletchley Park. And um, But she didn't know that she was there until, you know, after the training, which was at least three weeks training, maybe even six weeks training. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, and her... They, they both worked in different departments and they neither of them could talk about their work. So they didn't know what each other did for the longest time, even after the war. Even though wow. they knew them Bletchley, they never discussed their work because it was top secret. Top secret. Wow. Okay. Jan, we're going to our second break. Uh, uh, everybody stand by. Fascinating story. We'll be right back with uh, Jan Slimming, author of Codebreaker Girls. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with uh, Jan Slimming, author of Code Break Girls. Jan, when did you discover your mother was connected to secret intelligence work in World War II? Right, well, that is very interesting because um, even though I'd known since I was six that she had worked at Bletchley Park, because she always said I worked at Bletchley Park during the war, and we went there once, um, we couldn't get it, she couldn't get in because there was top security on this building. It ended up being um, British telecoms, and so we thought, oh, well, you know, as children, we thought, oh, that's why there's so much security, because it's the telephone place. And which we thought it just kind of converted to that after the war, but actually it more or less was GPO. It used to be called the General Post Office before British Telecoms, and so it was GPO-based all the time because of the, you know, telephone communications that they had at Bletchley during the war. But um, so, but we never made any reference to that, not until 1974 when things really started to break in England about code breaking. And there was a book that came out by Frederick Winterbottom called The Ultra Secret. And everybody was kind of absolutely amazed at what was going on and about this place during the war where all these women were reading secret messages from the Germans and everybody's saying oh my, that can't possibly be true and um, and then it came out that it was Bletchley Park and so I said to my mother I said was this you and she she just said yes that's what we did and without giving any more information I guess she felt it was okay to admit that because it, it was all in the press but not only that, in my publishing office in London at the time, we were working on, the, it must have been the 40th, working towards the, would that be right, the 40th anniversary of um, World War Two, And one of the editors was just standing there and we were, we, all the news had broken. I read about it on the, in the newspaper on the tube in the morning and we were all talking about this, you know, Bletchley Park and this is supposed to be a big coat co-cracking place and um, the editor came in to talk to my boss and um, started talking about Bletchley Park and I piped up, I remember it really well I piped up and said oh my mum worked at Bletchley Park and they both <laughs> stood completely still with their, draw, their mouths dropped to the floor and said what? <laughs> and I just said my mum worked at Bletchley Park what did she do? That's what they wanted to know. And I said, well, I don't know. She said she was a filing clerk. And um, and then they kind of went off a bit by then. But she wasn't a filing clerk. And um, But they did say that, you know, be careful because more will be coming out about this. And I wasn't really sure why they said be careful. That was a bit kind of ominous as well because all everything to do with the Official Secrets Act. Because um, before... Um, I can't remember when it actually changed. Soon after the war, I think if you if you told a secret, it was treason and you could hang. And then, oh. and if you, but I think it, I think it changed in 1947 or something. I'm not exactly sure when that happened. But um, the 
Um, but if she said anything under the Official Secrets Act, then she could at least have gone to prison. So, wow. so people were not talking at all about any of it, even though the news had broken. And so, you know, and there were a few things I asked, and, and her friend, she was called Dorothy Ebney, who we used to call Dot, and um, they would, she would come round for, you know, a cup of tea or something, and um, they would be talking about Bletchley Park. But, but as soon as we walked in the room, they would say, oh, well, we shouldn't be talking about that, should we? So we never really heard very much of their conversations. But I think between the two of them, they, they could talk a little more, even, even though they never talked, you know, in great detail, detail exactly at that time about what they did. Huh. Uh, what, what did your mother think about the secret finally being revealed, and what did she or they do? And also, what did you think and what was the biggest surprise to you? Well, my mother was absolutely horrified that they were that the news was coming out, and and then somewhere in the eighties there were these films about burning all the records and stuff like that, and she was she definitely said that, that did not happen like that. Now, after um, VE Day, a lot of people left Bletchley, um, but she had to stay on because. It turns out that she was working on Japanese codes and the Japanese oh. were on. So she didn't leave until after BJ Day. And she was not the last one to leave, but she left in October. Um, and I'm sure there was a lot of um, packing up of records, which actually ended up going to GCHQ via East Coat, which is where it was before the Donut Building was built in, Ch- in Cheltenham. And um, so, so she was um, quite horrified that, you know, people were talking after all that, all those years of silence and um, that she'd met. But, but eventually, you know, she didn't mind talking about it a little bit. But um, and it was basically snippets of information that she would give us. What was the next question? Uh what did she really think about what she was shocked about it but what did you think and what was your biggest surprise about all this um yeah when so eventually um when i started doing my research um first of all you know while she was alive we thought it was an intriguing subject but nobody seemed to care very much about it either i mean the government were not giving information. She could never get her file. She could never find the information that the government had on her. It was not public record at, um, at the National Archives in Kew. They are now. Um, so she could never get that information. But in in 2000, um, more things were being done. And uh, Bletchley Park, actually, the building itself, was saved by a group of people they had wanted to pull down the mansion and all the buildings in there and make it into a really nice housing estate, which would have been awful. Um, anyway, um, so they were trying hard to keep the, the mansion open, uh, and they had tours like twice a week or something like that, and lots of artifacts and memorabilia. There was even a Churchill exhibition there at one point. And um, so, But not until 2008 um, did 
were they able to really get moving? And even 2011, I think they had to wait for a, a huge amount of money to be put into this museum site, which they have now done. And when I first went to Bletchley in 2014, um, I went in March and there was all these hoardings up everywhere. It was like a building site, really. But, you know, they tried to make it nice. And one of the lovely things about Bletchley Park is, is the mansion. And they have this amazing lake and all the lake had been cleaned out. And it was it's really, really beautiful, apart from various hoardings around various buildings. Uh, and the reason that the hoardings were there was because of they, they were refurbishing all the huts where they talk about the huts where the people used to work my mother was in hut seven um and they were all being renovated so so that was march and then the next time i went in was may and the official opening had happened and it was it was incredible all the grass tennis courts were back um and all the huts were um all sorted out and lovely museum displays and everything but one of the most amazing things that I um, found out about Bletchley was that over 10,000 people worked there at some point during the war and 75% of them were women and some were in the services um, but most of them were civilian employees through um, the government and through the foreign office and, and so that was my most amazing thing for me, I think, was okay. that there were so many women there. Yeah, you were talking, you mentioned your, your mother was working on Japanese codes. That's fascinating. Did she ever tell you exactly what she did, how she broke these codes, or, or uh, uh, what was her daily routine type thing? Yeah, pe- people always ask me that. And I, and I asked her a few times, but she would never really tell me until... Um, oh. The year before she died, I actually got hold of her by the arms and I sat her down. I said, tell me what you actually did. <laughs> and she, and she, I, it's difficult to do it on radio, but let me see if I can describe it. So she picked her, her fingers. She's got really long fingers with lovely nails. Never, she never, ever wore nails on it. And but very nice long nails in her her hands came together as if she was picking up something from a small tin. And she pulled up what turns out to be paper, strips of paper, and she spread them out in front of her, about three or four strips. And what she was doing, she was laying out on that particular time, because I think she had more than one job, she was laying them out in front of her, and she smoothed them out. And then she said, I had to work out what was different. And I, and I said, well, what did it say? And she said, I have no idea what it said. It was all gobbledygook. And, but basically what she was doing, she was looking at the, um, the codes. The, um, it, would have, it depends on whether it was super enciphered or not but it would have been the Morse code, let's just say the basic Morse code, um, all jumbled up in cipher. And um, then she would have to look for patterns. And quite often they would look for patterns, and I've learned this since, that in the headers, which is like the address line, or the salutation at the end. However, sometimes when the um, messages were, you know, the message senders were trying to be clever, 
they would embed where the message came from right in the middle. But it was all in code. So so she was looking for things like double letters or um, repetition of certain um, um, letters because all numbers were actually spelled out. So it would have all been letters at that point in that code. And um, But everything... Um, she she never knew about the Enigma machine. In fact, lots of people have bled. She never knew it was called the Enigma machine. <clears throat> but mm-hmm. it seems like that she never actually worked on Enigma. She worked on the next one, which was Lorenz, which were the diplomatic codes, um, the higher codes of the Japanese, wow. German, wow. and Italian. So, um, and that is another story, really, um, because, um, as I say, it's Hartstevan. Um, I do have the details on that now. I do know that she was um, book building, which was, um, she was filling in the numbers. Um, so she also had to do non-additive math to strip off the super incitement. And um, she, yeah, I mean, and when they, when they found the information and what, what it was translated into, um, they were called stoppers. So huh. um, she was, first of all, she was a stripper and then she was a stopper. And, um, but she was so, she was, the strippers were stripping off the super incitement. And then when they actually found out what it was, and this is all, man, this is all manually done. Now, the machines that Turing did and then Colossa, Colossus were all doing the same kind of work as she was doing, but much faster. And, um, Wow. Well, I, I never, yeah, I never realized that 007's real name was Daisy. <laughs> I know, I know. That was what we used to joke about, actually. And she did know Ian. She knew Ian Fleming as well. I mean, he was there. He, he, oh, that's he, right. He had, um, he was at the Admiralty and he would come and, um, and, and, you know, pick up messages and things like that. So she knew who he was. And, That's right. Um, Ian Fleming, Ian, Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, worked at yeah. Leslie, uh, Leslie Park. Now, I forgot about that. But, okay, uh, we're going to our last break. Absolutely fascinating interview. Uh, folks, please stand by. We'll be right back. This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. And remember to put those plastic bags that you get from the grocery store in a big trash bag that can be used as a poncho by the homeless uh, and bring them to America's Web Radio, and we'll see that Frankie Holbrook with 
Shine His Light Ministry gets them. With that being said, let's turn back to a very interesting story. And Pete and his guest, Jan, and it's all yours, Pete. Thank you, David. Jan, uh, when the family found out that your mother was a code breaker, uh, uh, a James Bond during World War II, how did that news affect your father? Um, he was quite quiet about it, actually, because he'd been a prisoner of war. Oh, that's he, right, huh? he was, he never really wanted to talk about his story either, but I had, had he, he did a tape for me back in the 1990s, as I said, and um, he always thought that he would be, he, he was in the main front of things because she could never talk about any of this secret work that she did. And um, I, I don't really know. He, he never really said... He did take my mother to Bletchley, back to Bletchley again, and they did try to find out more information about her file and that, that kind of thing. Whether I don't think she ever told him that she worked on Japanese codes because at the time um, when he was alive and they were going to visit, it was all... Everybody was saying, oh, it's all German... Um, codes mostly and only a little bit on um, Japanese codes and um, and my mother had always said she didn't really um, work work in that part to do with Enigma so so I always thought that you know she was a lowly clerk somewhere which you know to some extent she was but she was so were a lot of other people they all said they were filing clerks or I think the most, the, the highest one was a was a, a linguist. Um, they all had these titles called temporary assistants, uh, and <laughs> but actually, what it turns out was it was more to do with traffic analysis um, because that was one of the things that they had to do. They had to analyse everything um, into the smallest detail. So you know, a, a four-word message might have been split into eight categories or something like that and filed away and um then it was it was the precursor to google actually it's a search engine at Bletchley park and they had thousands and thousands of bits of information all very carefully categorized um which was a system which had started at the war office after the first world war actually but um it was mega proportions um at Bletchley. But as far as, and I think that's what my father thought he was, she was just a clerk because she never really said anything about exactly what she was doing. And I'm pretty sure she never ever told him that she worked on Japanese naval codes um, until at some point, maybe when she, maybe she told him that they did actually go back to Singapore when my father was a prisoner of war. Um... Maybe she said a bit more then. Um, so he was so he was quite gracious, really, in a way. And he was always a very mild man and man anyway. So um, I don't think he would have objected too much if okay. she was going to get the same. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to your mother after the war? Yeah, now that was uh, another, another thing where, um, again, we never knew how much she she could say to anybody apart from maybe the doctor um she had several new several um nervous breakdowns and um 
growing up, um, there were at least three occasions where she was away from us for three months at a time. I like to think she was on a mission somewhere, but actually she was in a mental hospital. Ooh. And um, so she had um, uh, this, I think it's called ECT, um, where she had to have these electric shock treatment to um, help her forget, really. Um, yeah. It got to the point where she couldn't, it was, it was a form of PTSD that she had. And um, my father also probably had PTSD, but, you know, it, was, it wasn't a thing then, um, straight after the war. And he managed to get through it. He was, he was I guess, stronger, whereas she could never lie. And so she, she had trouble getting a job and that kind of thing because she could never tell them what she did in the war. Huh. Um, so that was quite, it was, it, I mean, to us growing up, you know, it was kind of normal, really. But when I look back, it must have been very harrowing for my father to have to deal with my mother, who didn't seem to be able to cope with anything, really, um, because she had had this job in the war, which she could never talk about. And I can't, can't imagine not being able to tell my children what I did, what I did at work. And um, it would have, I'm, I'm sure it was very, very hard on her. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That You know, I was with intelligence during Vietnam, yet mm. my, my daughters never asked me about it, uh, which I could tell her a lot now, but I couldn't tell her back then. Uh, that's yeah. very interesting, interesting comment. You should, Did your mother, you should at yes, least you write it down. <laughs> <laughs> True, true. Well, it's in one of my books, but it, I, I approach it from the humorous point of view. I, I didn't get too serious about it. I'm not. Uh, I saw enough in Vietnam not to get too serious. Okay, every day's gravy. But what, did your mother receive any kind of recognition or medal? No, they didn't, um, because it was so secret for so long. Um, even when it came out in 1974, there was a lot. Of- you know, a lot of people say, no, no, you know, they, they weren't in the forces. They should never really get a medal or anything like that. And um, and I, like I said, it was probably 10,000 civilians that were almost running it, really, because a lot of the commanders came to rely on the messages and the agencies that worked together to provide the um, the strategies that were coming out of the... There's some, there's some quite good telegrams, which I, I don't have here, so I can't really talk about them here, but um, like the D-Day um, messages, um, they had come to le- to rely on intelligence from Churchill's secret source. And, um, yeah, they... Um, well, that, that's that's a shame. People like her deserve some type of. Re- well, she's getting her recognition mm-hmm. now through you, and that that's a that's a blessed. Well, point. they did eventually uh, get something. They um they 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 got something in two thousand and nine, but it was too late for my mother because she died in wow. two thousand and six. They had a Bletchley badge of honor. <laughs> oh me, uh, yeah, that's sad. Uh, if you knew what your mother had been involved in. During World War II, do you think uh, you could have possibly followed in her footsteps? I would like to have think. Uh, yeah, I think I would like to have done that. Really, um, even though I had a great career, um, 
I might have gone the other way, but she always told me it was really boring, office work and doing all these figure work things and everything. So I thought, well, why on earth would I want to do that? Um, <laughs> she did try to point me towards um, computers and punch cards and things, um, but I never really knew why, because she could never explain why, that the Hollerith system that they had at Bletchley Park was the precursor to IBM. Um, huh. And the... Um, and that, you know, she she said, well, go and do some of this radio work. So you see banks of women with headphones on, listening, like a telephone operator. Well, I didn't want to be a telephone operator. I wanted to be <laughs> in the office doing what I did in the end, which was, you know, I eventually became director of a company. I was in business. And it was... It was it was not something I really had in mind that I wanted to do, but if she'd been able to tell me exactly what it was and why, I'm, I might have changed my mind. Because of course, by the time it was starting to break, I had already I was already on on route to my career that I had for 25 years, which yeah. was not the government. <laughs> <laughs> Jan, this has been a fascinating story about your mother's contribution during World War II. Uh, they were part of the greatest generation, just like our American uh, men and women were. Let me ask yeah. you this. I know you're working on another book. Tell us about book number two. Right. Well, book number two is about Janice Martin Benario, um, because originally um, I had her story and I based my mother's story on her emotions and what happened to her when she was uh, when she joined the Waves. Um, and it was one book, actually, to start with. And I weaved the two stories together. And um, but then the publisher said they wanted to split them. So um, my mother's book came out first and this earlier this year um in america it's just come out in march and um janice martin benario's book will be published next january uh so that's the second one so that's going to be about american co-breaking and intelligence i'll have to come and talk to you pete and uh, make sure i've got it all oh, right yeah. <laughs> and um uh, I had to I had to do a lot of filling in in that because even though the publisher said split it 50-50, it wasn't 50-50. It was more like 75% on my mother's side and British co-breaking and 25% yeah. American. So, of course, I've had to pad it out a lot more with more information, which I think I've done and I've learned a lot, so that's good. And um, But then the third book um, is... Um, about is my father's story as a Far Eastern prisoner of war. He kept a diary, um, and we've, it was a very tiny little diary written in very faint pencil, which he hid from the Japanese. And cool. um, we've we've been able to, and he and from the tape he's given us as well. Um, and again, he would always put humour into it. We would never, as he as he only had daughters, he never really spoke to us. You know, like perhaps he would a son or mm -hmm. a guy, and um, so everything was quite light-hearted because, or else they would tell somebody else. Um, you know, somebody that's not. They would protect their immediate family um, and only talk to people. You know, two or three people removed um, about their horrific experiences, uh, and so anyway, so we, we've we've got some of that and um, my sister's been doing that my twin sister Jill Robertson 
and uh, we're working together on that, and that will be published um, towards the end of 2022, I hope. Well, uh, <laughs> I understand. Uh, I'm working on my third right now. Uh, fascinating. Jan, would you like to, uh, before we close, uh, mention the Churchill Society and a couple of websites that you're interested in? Yeah, the Churchill Society have been great, actually, because they've been encouraging me all the way along the line. And so um, I belong to, or we belong to, the Georgia Churchill. Uh, it's called the, the Winston Churchill wrap it up, Society yeah. of Georgia. And their, their um, website is um, georgiachurchill.com. And I also wanted to mention bletchleypark.org.uk. Got to wrap it up. Um, okay. Yeah. And Kofi yep. um, Poe is another organization in England that we belong to for children of Far Eastern prisoners of war. And then nice. my publishers are Casemate, Publishers, and Pen and Sword Books. Okay. Jan, thank you. We're going to have to close it out. Now, I could talk to you all day long about this. Fascinating. Uh, thank you, Jan, for the interview. Uh, remarkable, remarkable book. Uh, folks, uh, stay with us for next week. Uh, another interesting guest. Again, thank you so much, Jan. Great, great story. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.